You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Monday, August 3rd, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington from New York, joined shortly by our managing editor, Ed Harrison. But first, with today's stories, Nick Correa. Thanks, Ash. Congress remains at odds with no extensions to enhanced unemployment benefits and no agreements made on what the next relief bill will shape up to be. Some Republican lawmakers throughout the past week have offered a piecemeal approach through passing smaller bills in order to reinstate programs like enhanced benefits. However, this has been rejected by Democrats, who are more in favor of a comprehensive bill. Coming to a consensus on the new bill still seems to be out of reach. With enhanced benefits having officially passed an end date on Friday, let's consider what might be at stake and what might show up in the data in the coming weeks. The Household Pulse Survey, led by the Census Bureau, is a measure of how households are faring during the coronavirus pandemic. In week seven of their data collection, which would account for the week June 11th through the 16th, they started to gather data on stimulus payments and its effect on the American population. In the survey, one question they asked concerned the sources of income used in the past seven days to meet expenditures, and respondents could select multiple answers. Together with its weighted system and other data compiled from other bureaus, the survey had approximated responses to the size of the U.S. population, 18 years and older. From weeks 7 through 12, reliance on UI benefits for spending rose from 12.90% to 14.42%. And for stimulus checks, it had decreased from 26.06% to 19.60%. The expenditure categories that are the highest in terms of where stimulus checks had gone to were food, utilities and telecommunications, rent and mortgages, household supplies and personal care, as well as paying down debt, saving, and investing. With a combination of enhanced benefits and stimulus checks rolling off about the same time, as well as some delays for people receiving checks via mail, it could have an impact on how much the checks will still be utilized for some. But it shows that the effect decreases quickly, whereas UI has somewhat of a baseline for overall aggregate spending. This dynamic could change with new legislation, or lack thereof. We'll be keeping track of it all over the coming weeks and we'll update you as the situation evolves. With that said, let's send it back over to Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Nick. Welcome back, Ed. Good to be here. Uh, I could say unhappy Monday because as I look out, I see that it's uh, we have a storm brewing outside here in, in the D.C. area. Yeah. What's the name of this tropical storm? Uh, you know, uh, if you ask me to pronounce it, I would probably butcher it. So I'm not going to even try. And coming from you, the polyglot. <laughs> That's uh, quite an impressive, uh, pretty impressive statement. Yeah, they have the accent on on the second to last syllable, and uh, I think that throws me off. Or maybe it was even the, the yeah. I think it's the second to last syllable. I just uh, it's difficult to pronounce. 
Well, not my forte. Let's jump right in. You started credit write-downs out this morning with uh, quite a lead. We're in the middle of a grand social experiment right now. Yeah, you know, and by the way, that's a, a, a drinking term uh, for everyone who's listening because people say if you don't mention credit write-downs at least once and they're going to have to drink. So you just did it right off the bat. I really right like that. So for those of you playing that drinking game, you know, get in there, make it happen. And, you know, uh, you're right on the money because I, I wanted to follow up with what Nick was saying to us about the fiscal cliff because actually uh, the, the post was supposed to be about the fiscal cliff, the cliff and a potential double dip. Um, but yeah. really, it's more than anything about uh, the second wave and also what I would call the unsustainability of this grand experiment, this uh, social distancing that we're going through. I mean, from my perspective, just as, as a personal perspective, I was thinking of it in terms of my son's own uh, uh, desire not to come home at the, the requisite time yesterday and uh, his uh, difficulty in social distancing himself. You know, yeah. as a 14 year old, a very social outgoing kid who is being forced to not go to school uh, in September and October because they're doing virtual schooling here in the county that uh, that that I live in, Montgomery County, Maryland. So I think this is this is where we all are right now. And this is likely where we're going to be in these kinds of uh, thinking for the foreseeable future, just because we're in the middle of a second wave, not just here in the United States, but globally as well. Yeah, you know, that's actually a great lead into what I was going to ask you next. You've been doing a deep dive, I think, in a way that's really compelling about the virus numbers around the world, the public policy response, and the impact on the economic outlook for those countries, especially in Europe. What are your thoughts right now? I know you mentioned Sweden specifically. Why is that important? Yeah, I think that Sweden is uh, the most controversial of them all. Uh, and I think that what precipitated my post today in terms of thinking of it from the viral perspective, other than uh, the second wave, is the GDP numbers that are going to come out of Sweden. We saw numbers before from the United States and from the rest of Europe. Spain was a laggard. The United States was hit at negative 32.9%. That's uh, an annualized figure, which is 9.5% on an actual basis. But Sweden, supposedly, they're going to come in at 7%. So that's going to be better than the United States, better than the 19-member euro area. And then the question is, uh, is it worth it? You know, uh, how, do, how do we look at this in terms of the sustainability of the response protocols that people have put into place in various places. And I mean, as a lot of people may know, despite the death toll in Sweden, I have a some sympathy for their public health strategy because the way that I understand it, it was designed to be sustainable. It was a sustainable new normal over the longer period of time, as opposed to an absolute minimization of viral contagion, uh, they were thinking about what happens if the coronavirus problem stays with us for the longer term? How do we have a new normal that's sustainable that uh, we can continue in the same mode for a very long period of time? And so I, that's how I'm thinking of it right now, because the second wave that we're seeing uh, in the United States in particular, but also to a lesser degree in other places. I think Victoria, where, which is well, Melbourne, the second largest city in Australia is, is a perfect example. Those are places that uh, um, are now in lockdown um, in Victoria. And the reason is, is because 
what was going on wasn't sustainable. Their, their protocols have been proved to not last over the long term. And so I think that that's going to be negative uh, for their economy. And, uh, you know, Sweden is looking better in some respects right now as a result. Yeah, you know, a couple of things that you said jumped out at me there. First, the the question of we've been talking about this internally at, at Real Vision, how these uh, GDP numbers are reported. They're reported differently in the United States. They're reported on a uh, annualized yearly rate, SAAR, seasonally adjusted annualized rate. So when you see a 32.9% drop, uh, that's expressed over the year. And exactly as you pointed out, quarter over quarter, that's 9.5% contraction of U.S. GDP. You know, the second question that uh, that sort of strikes me is when you think about this, it's a it's a very challenging uh, it's a very challenging bogey. You're talking about uh, not just minimizing viral infections, but of course trying to minimize loss of life uh, on the one hand, and and two, ma- managing this time horizon uh, balance with what can we do in the short term to try and flatten the curve to the maximum extent possible, uh, and then on the other hand, how do you build uh, a sustainable strategy? For operating in a way that minimizes uh, the loss of life and the and infection while trying to preserve the economy. These are incredibly complex trade-offs. Yeah, they really are. And uh, and I think that uh, we're going to be going through it for quite a long time. Uh, you know, I have two or three things in my, on my mind I want to get out today about this. Uh, one has to do with uh, something that's happened with the cruise line industry recently. Uh, remind me if I don't come back to that. Another is data that I saw out of Germany that gives you a sense of, you know, the levels that we're talking about here. So let me go through a few charts in Germany just to give you a sense of how I'm thinking about it. Um, The the first chart is a chart uh, in yellow, which shows the number of new infections daily in Germany over a longer period of time. There's a red line on this chart, which shows you the seven day moving average. And what you see there, and if you think about Germany, not as a country that has had a really bad outbreak, but as someone that a country that that's done fairly well is a massive first wave. And, you know, even though the numbers are trending up in the second wave, they are much lower than they were in the first wave. So that's an example of relative uh, success in terms of the COVID crisis. Now, if you look at the R number, the reproduction number, interestingly enough, what you'll see is there was a big spike up when they came out of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, they got it back down under control, but the numbers are still around the 1% level, the, the 1.0, sorry, level reproduction, which means for each person who's infected, they infect on average one other person. And yeah. the, that just shows you that what's happened is, is, is that they've, they've done a great job in terms of getting people into these little clusters and then quarantining them and isolating them and not letting it spread out by testing and quarantining. That's that's one of the reasons that you don't see the second large bump the way that you have in the United States. Yeah. And then finally, let me add a third chart, which is the uh, the comparison of, you know, how many people per 100,000 residents have uh have been infected with COVID-19 or confirmed to have been infected with COVID-19. The United States is at the top. Brazil comes in second. Uh, Sweden, which we were just talking about, comes in third on this chart. And the interesting bit is, is the slope of those lines. Obviously, you'll never slope downward because you always reach a certain level and then you either stay there or you go higher. Uh, a lot of the places like Sweden have are, are in stasis. Italy is in stasis. Uh, Germany's largely in stasis. 
uh, the United States and Brazil are rising rapidly. So their rates of inf our rates of infection of detected infection are rising. So I think that um, you know the bottom line there is that for me, some countries have been doing this better than other countries, and my expectation therefore is is those countries will uh, do better because the economic consequences of not uh, controlling the virus are going to be felt in terms of how people shop, uh, whether there are localized lockdowns, and in terms of just overall behavior uh, all around. Let me just continue with this whole concept for a second here, because the, in terms of the economic consequences that I was talking about, uh, let's let's look at them not just from the economy, but from the financial markets. There was a piece by Gavin Davies that I thought was very interesting on that. And the analysis that he made basically said that when researchers looked into evidence that equity price changes were explained by corporate earnings expectations during this pandemic, they didn't find any evidence there. What they found is, is, is that really what's going on is, is that the equity a risk premium has uh, been altered. It, it went way up. Uh, as we went into a liquidity crisis in February and March, and then it's come back down after the Fed intervened. So really what we're seeing, uh, or what we have seen thus far during this pandemic, is as we've seen equity prices react as a result of a risk premium more than as a result of corporate earnings collapsing or uh, improvements in terms of expectations of corporate earnings, uh, what, what have you. My belief is, is that going forward, starting in the September, October timeframe that I've been talking about for some time, that yeah. what we are actually going to see going forward is that the risk premium is going to continue to be relatively stable, uh, but it's the corporate earnings that are going to be the the real push here. They're the ones that the the the, the corporate earnings are going to be the things that will take stocks up or down. So it's not going to be an absolute collapse into a liquidity crisis as we saw, but the proof is in the pudding in terms of these specific sectors of the economy, these specific companies, based upon how well they do in response to a second or a third or a fourth wave of the virus, which I completely believe will happen. Yeah, I read that piece too in the FT, Gavin Davis, uh, chairman of Fulcrum Asset Management, exactly as you said, and exactly as kind of we've been discussing here now for, for weeks or months. Not, I think he used the phrase not rational, talking about in terms of the expectations of pricing relative to earnings, but all about cuts in the discount rate, increases in liquidity, uh, and easing credit conditions. And then the final point that he made, uh, which I thought was interesting, is that uh, he talked about the Fed expressing potential unlimited policy action in the future. So the forward guidance component there as well being a factor that supported uh, that supported U.S. equity market valuations, and you know that brings me back to something that I've been looking at today, uh, which is uh, which is tech stocks. Right, this is a this is definitely a tech stock story. Uh, what we saw last week when uh, when big cap tech uh, stocks uh, reported earnings uh, was earnings to the upside uh, versus uh, versus expectations uh, and uh, revenue to the upside. I think earnings a little bit stronger uh, relative to expectations than revenue, uh, but top and bottom line beats. Now there were a little bit of uh, 
maybe some amber warning signals that were flashing. Google posted its first year-over-year decline in revenue since they became a listed company. Uh, And Facebook reported a decrease uh, in the velocity of earnings increases, so a second derivative effect, a deceleration, so to speak, uh, in earnings. Uh, But look, NASDAQ 100, all-time high today. Uh, NASDAQ closing at all-time highs. We, these are these are some really uh, some interesting signals. What we've talked about the concentration of this market being in those very large cap tech stocks, who are of course doing very well as more of our lives become virtual. Uh, and I know you have some thoughts about that as well in terms of the the virtualization of our lives versus uh, the kind of in real life component. That I thought was interesting that you wrote about. Yeah, you know, um, the, the way I'm um, internalizing it now as opposed to this morning has to do with a trifecta of cruise line um, uh, announcements that I heard about. And, and the interesting bit is, is for me in three different places, Norwegian cruise lines, uh, there was a, in Tahiti another incident and a third in Italy that happened, all of which were about quarantining and COVID infections on these cruises. And if you remember, we were talking back in May about Norwegian cruise lines hitting the uh, the, the books with a $600, $600 million upsize to $675 million bond issue because you know, after the Fed came in, there was appetite for risk. People wanted to risk on. I think this deal got off at like a 12.5% um, um, IRR. And people were like, you know, 12.5%, it's collateralized. This is a great deal. Let's do it. Let's make it happen. Now we come back a few months later. Here we are in the month of August. That's three months later. And Norwegian is basically shutting down uh, it, its operations because they've had a COVID outbreak in the second wave. To me, yeah. that tells you uh, how this is going to play out without a vaccine, because everyone is banking on the vaccine to give us a bailout. Let's let's call it. This is how I'm thinking of it. It's a bailout. People are thinking we want the bail, the medical bailout, the vaccine, and th- so that everything can go back to normal. But what if actually it, we don't get that bailout? What if? this is the normal, the new normal, then companies like Norwegian are going to hit the wall. That is that they're not going to be able to roll over their debt continuously because of these kinds of, of, uh, of, of ruptures. And so when you talk about the virtual world, yes, uh, you're going to have a bifurcation there where there's going to be a continual move away from these types of activities towards activities that will make people feel safe and that they can control in this new normal that we're living in. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was teeing up. I think those are some great points. I hadn't heard anyone refer to the vaccine as a medical bailout before, but that really is an interesting metaphor. It is kind of the panacea or the magic bullet that everyone's hoping uh, will solve all the problems. But you know, I think you're spot on on this with this bifurcation issue between the virtual and the real. Uh, you know, I was reading. Uh, I think we discussed a little bit earlier the Rana Faruhar piece uh, in today's FT as well. And you know, she's definitely kind of grokking your view on that. That basically there's like this division uh, between the real world and uh, and and the virtual world and travel. 
uh, and transportation are one of the major uh, are one of the major dividing lines there. And if you have a major collapse in the way that uh, people move around the country uh, and around the world, for that matter, you see a major change in the way that we lead our lives, the way we do business, and the way the economy functions. Right. Yes. And and so getting to what she was saying and putting it together with what I'm saying, if if we do not get the medical bailout that a vaccine represents, then the the lives that we're living now are in a sense a new normal. Yeah. Uh, remember, I'm thinking of Sweden as the bogey eventually moving toward the least restrictive uh, movements possible over the longer term in that sort of scenario that we're going to hopefully move in that direction. But the new normal won't be like the old normal. Right. And so if you put that together with what she's saying, she's saying that there's going to be basically an absolute collapse in certain types of uh, arrangements like travel as we knew it isn't going to happen. So before this, we got on, uh, I was drinking out of this absolutely crazy size mug that I bought in uh, Cozumel in, in Mexico because we used to uh, vacation there every year. We're not going to we're not going there this year. That's not going to happen. We're not, I'm not going to the Starbucks in that area because, uh, you know, of COVID-19. Instead, I might go to Long Beach Island. I might go to the Delmarva Coast, Delaware, Maryland uh, and Virginia. Yeah. So that's 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 what's going to happen. And what that means ultimately is, again, you have this bifurcation. And during that time, uh, there's going to be a massive change. It's not just going to be winners and losers. It's going to be a shift, a change, and therefore a downshift in terms of growth overall, nominal growth coming down, less consumption, more unemployment. It's going to be a very long, hard slog. And I think that only now as we're getting into the second wave, are we starting to realize that this is the case? I feel that uh, the second wave will accelerate and also increase the number of bankruptcies that we're going to see uh, starting in uh, the fall. Yeah. You know, and it also makes me wonder about the second order effects on this, the animal spirits impact effect. You know, I never forget how lucky we are to be able to do this, what we do, and to have an audience who's been loyal to us at Robes and Daily Briefing throughout this crisis. But I often think back to jobs that I've had in the past when I was working in banking and, and different things where I was physically in person. I mean, my life would be totally turned upside down right now. Uh, if it weren't for the fact that we were in this small minority of people uh, who were able to do their jobs and live their lives relatively well virtually. That's not the case for most people in the country. No, and most people in, in the entire world. Yeah. So being able to to move to a situation in which you can uh, actually uh, move around and feel safe in, in this new normal, it's going to take us a while transition to get there. And again, uh, you know, we can't rely on a vaccine to to make that happen. You know, going to the economy, just thinking about the economic uh, factors here, uh, because I think what Nick was talking to earlier today was about, you know, where people are spending their money when they're getting the pandemic unemployment assistance, and that's going away. And again, I think that that will be an accelerant for this transition to uh, the bifurcation that we're talking about. But we had a, a minus 32.9, which is a 9.5% on an absolute basis decrease in Q2. Q3 in the United States is expected to be up some 17%. As I saw, the Atlanta Fed GDP now numbers are already tracking at 11%. But now what if uh, you know we don't get a resolution uh, politically to the impasse in terms of re-upping the money that people need in order to survive that they're not getting 
because uh, pandemic unemployment assistance has uh, gone away. That 17%, that 11% GDP now number, that, that gets cut dramatically. So that's where you know you could see Q3 or Q4 actually in real terms uh, contract uh, in a worst case scenario. All of this happening while we're in the midst of an election cycle, which yeah. makes it that much more politically charged, that much more violent. And I think that the downside risks are therefore manifest and I, they will come due uh, after the summer lull is over, uh, w without a doubt, if we don't get something in place very soon. Yeah, I'm much more bullish on the American economy and the American people than I am uh, in Congress's ability to come together and agree on on saying rational ways to, uh, you know, to limit the, the downside risks here. But, you know, it's something that we've talked about. And I think the two key words uh, that we've been talking about today are, um, you know, our sustainability number one, and new normal, that, that, that we basically have this real shift, this transition. Uh, and the question is whether it's sustainable. I mean, we are still at a relatively short period of time here. Uh, and when winter comes around, it's also exacerbated uh, by weather. Or now another way of saying it would be it's eased by good weather. I can go out and walk around the block if I feel stir crazy in my, you know, in my apartment. Uh, there's the option of going and dining outside. In the Northeast, where a large percentage of the American population lives and in other places of the country outside of the Southeast and the Southwest, there are going to be significant factors that are going to constrain people's activities as the cold weather comes. These are things that are a certainty. Yeah, so I, I think uh, the jury's still out as to whether our actions, our activities are sustainable over the longer term. Yeah. And uh, that means that there's a lot more downside risk from COVID. We also don't know what's gonna happen with regard to the policy apparatus. On the one hand, we have the problems in the Eurozone in terms of getting together and, and getting something. We have the exact same problems, but of a different nature in the United States. And I think those are the places where you can see more downside risk. I don't see, honestly, at this point, I, I'd like to hear your view in terms of where the upside is outside of a vaccine. So when, when I talk about the medical bailout, to me, that's, how, that's why I'm looking at it that way, because that's the only thing that is potentially giving us any upside to the degree that that vaccine date gets pushed back or becomes unrealistic. As the WHO just said today, you know, Mr. Tedros from the WHO in Geneva said, you know, we can't look at it as one silver bullet that's going to happen. If that uh, seeps in, I think then people are going to have a completely different uh, understanding about the new normal that really we're in this not just for two months, three months, we're in it for nine months, uh, you know, two years, something of that nature. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about it in a very similar way. So I think it's vaccine. Uh, the question of how long a vaccine takes to develop, what the efficacy rates are. There's some discussion about a vaccine that may not be 100% effective. I saw the number 50% efficacy uh, just tossed around loosely. So the question is, how effective is it? Also, how long does it take to distribute and deploy the vaccine so it can create enough uh, of an impact in terms of herd immunity to stop the transmission? I guess the other thing that I would add to that, Ed, is the effectiveness of uh, treatment which has increased, obviously not increased nearly enough. It's not where we'd like it to be. Uh, but there's remdesivir. Uh, there are steroidal treatments. Uh, there's some of the protocols with putting people on ventilators have improved. So the mortality rate for this in the U.S. is declining, still obviously nowhere near where it needs to be. But more effective treatments, I think, could also 
be a, a pathway toward a uh, toward a renormalization of life here in the U.S., uh, especially for populations who are less at risk. Uh, but all of that said, I think you're exactly right. That is, uh, you know, the medical bailout is a great frame. I like that. It makes a lot of sense. So I think it's treatment and vaccine. And then in terms of uh, financial markets, it's what we were talking about earlier with gentlemen from Fulcrum. The question is to the extent to which fiscal and monetary policy will support U.S. and global risk asset prices. So uh, it's the it's the monetary side, credit easing and liquidity uh, function, and then also on the fiscal side, uh, the ability to support and stimulate the economy with fiscal policy. Uh, the president was talking today about potentially taking executive action to limit evictions. Uh, obviously, keeping people in their homes uh, is something that's a very popular political issue. What the impact and how that translates onto uh, economic function remains to be seen. But yeah, I think those uh, those things that you mentioned, we're thinking about this in very similar ways. Yeah. Let me just uh, finish off the conversation with the concept that uh, these are unprecedented times. And um, the, I understand that uh, the new economy, uh, the virtual economy is going to benefit to a certain degree, but it leaves me very uneasy to think that we're in the worst financial and economic crisis that we've had in more than three quarters of a century, you know, almost a, a century, and stock prices have barely moved, that yeah. we're nearer the all-time highs than we are at the, the crisis lows. To me, that speaks to uh, a lack of acceptance of the reality that faces us going forward. So we'll just have to see how this plays out. I do think it makes some sense to see the bifurcation that we're seeing now, uh, but I, the the aggregate picture that I'm seeing from the S&P 500, from um, index funds, et cetera, leaves me somewhat worried uh, from junk bonds, I should add as well, in terms of the uh, the spreads that have happened there, worried that the downside risk has not been fully appreciated by uh, markets and that in the coming months, uh, when the second wave, uh, the effects are obvious that we're, we're going to see uh, another sort of sell off. I think that that's where my worry is at this point. Yeah, S&P closed today, 3294, uh, all time high, 3393. So less than 3% off the all time high. And, you know, I would just add to that uh, on a cyclical basis, U.S. entered recession in February of 2020. So in addition to the the massive headwind we face as a result of this virus, there's a cyclical slowdown that was occurring anyway. Yeah, so uh, to be continued, but uh, that that's where I am today. Uh, it's a good day in the markets, but I I, I remain a, a bit uh, a bit worried and a bit uh, skeptical that this has legs beyond the summer. Positive day in markets as we add that little bit of gray to the silver lining. Yes. Thanks for joining us, Ed. Thanks, Ash. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.